0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 173. Have you thought about contributing to an open source Python project? What are possible entry points for intermediate developers? Christopher Trudeau is back on the show this week, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We discuss a recent article by Stephanie Mullen, titled, Five Ways to Get Started in Open Source. Christopher shares his experiences with suggesting features and potential bug fixes. We talk about common entry points for beginners and provide additional resources. We cover a recent real Python tutorial about creating QR codes with Python. The tutorial introduces the library Segno and tours the features. By working through the examples, you'll be ready to build a QR code project yourself. We also cover several other articles and projects from the Python community including a couple of release announcements, an introduction to Python's functools module, switching to hatch for packaging, options for when NumPy is too slow, a simple diceware generator project, and a collection of machine learning recipes. All right, let's get started. The Real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey Christopher, welcome back to the show. Hey there. So we have kind of a short news roundup, a couple items as we chug toward Python 3.12 coming out. Yeah,
1: a little more variety this time. Uh, Start off with the 2023 Django Developer Survey. Every year, the Django community sends this out looking for data on how the framework is used. This year, there's some questions on, you know, the parts of the framework you use most, how and if you containerize, what features you'd like, the usual survey stuff. It's open until October 1st, so if you're a Django person and you want to contribute your private opinion on things, uh, go click the link. Nice. Yeah, as you kind of mentioned that, there's that smell on the horizon. It's a a Python release. We're getting really close to 3.12. (laughs) uh, And uh, as a result, just after our last podcast went out, RC2 was spit out into the world. So uh, we should start a countdown or something. Yeah. And and of course, the, the most important of 3.12 is that that means we'll have a podcast dedicated to 3.12 because it's all about us.
0: Got to bring Gerarna back on here. <laughs> exactly. That's right.
1: Next little bit of news is Pandas 2.1 came out at the end of August. This version continues their move towards Pyro becoming a required dependency as they continue to adjust that framework. There's a bunch of copy-on-write improvements, a fresh new implementation of the data frame stack method, and a bunch more. So if you do pantas, go grab the hot freshness. All right. And then the final bit is almost a little follow-on note. Back in episode 157, we discussed PEP 713. That PEP was proposing to make modules callable. And as you might guess by my use of past tense in that sentence, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been rejected. Uh, so, okay, so the steering council didn't feel it was compelling enough to include it over the other complications that it would introduce. So we're not going to have callable modules in Python imports.
0: Okay, yeah, I guess they got to figure out a different way to approach that if if that's truly something they want down the road. Make it more compelling, I guess. But yeah, it's interesting to watch the. The process uh, we've talked about lots of these across the show over the years of things uh, being proposed and then you know being rejected and
1: yeah and if you're interested on how the sausage gets made the uh, you know the link is the announcement in a discussion forum yeah and that discussion that is basically the announcement also has a link to the deeper discussion of uh, the council so you can you know if you if you're interested in how it all works and how they make decisions about this and what they argue about before making a decision you can drill through and learn.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're gonna have a lot of that kind of stuff this week, places for you to dig in and learn way more about a particular area of focus. So that's great. Yeah. Dig into the peps. My first topic this week is a real Python, not sure if to call it a, a project or to call it sort of a exploration of a Python package that's out there. It's a new tutorial by author Sarah Hack. She's a new author with us here at RealPython, and it's called Generate Beautiful QR Codes with Python. Um, (laughs) If anybody was not familiar with QR codes, uh, maybe two, three years ago, I think the pandemic has changed that. If anybody's gone to a restaurant, especially in the U.S., it's been a big shift uh, where basically... Everything's a a scannable thing to bring up a menu on your phone and things like that. So less and less touch surfaces. So QR codes are becoming somewhat ubiquitous. I think it's really odd to see them on a television program, but whatever.
1: It's become so ubiquitous, it's become an attack vector. Yeah, it is. It's always been one, I think. people are printing out stickers to put over the QR codes on the restaurant tables so that what you scan Ooh, yeah. is what they want you to scan <laughs> and send you off to nefarious places. And of course, restaurants don't understand that's what's going on.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh,
1: and, and if the attack vector is smart enough, they redirect you back to the restaurant afterwards. So uh, yeah, QR codes, fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just tell me the site first. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Yeah, like I know on my Apple devices it at least show me the the where it's headed to, you know. So I wonder if it's something
1: if yeah, half the time is the, the problem is they're often uh URL shorteners. So it's yeah. like yeah, yeah, that it's not branded with the restaurant. I don't know where that's taking me. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would like a piece of paper, please. Why? <laughs> well, uh would you like a 3-hour uh, lecture on computer uh, security or would you just yeah, like yeah. to get me a piece of paper?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sure, sir. (laughs) So this one is talking about a library. It's called Segno, S-E-G-N-O, and it explores the overall library features. I think it's really kind of a cool library to explore because if you were looking to do something more with QR codes and build them, maybe you're looking at making a CLI or maybe... Explore using it with like a GUI. I I feel like this is a great place for somebody to build much bigger project from and explores a lot of those aspects of the whole library and kind of get you familiar with what's happening with it. So with the help of this tutorial, you're going to learn about not only creating the codes for your personal use, but potentially, again, maybe making a project out of it. You start with fundamental stuff, pip installing the library, and Um, using it to just create something that says hello world when somebody looks at it. So it doesn't have to always point to a URL. That's probably the most common thing, but it can just display text if you'd like from there. It it goes into how large do you want this thing to be changing its size? Talks a little bit about the background about QR codes itself of about how these little black and white squares are called modules. I guess the, border around the QR code, they call it the quiet zone, the blank space, and there's ways to adjust that. Also changing the colors within the QR code, not only the whole thing, like its background or the foreground or even different portions of it. And then there's a couple other libraries you can add to do a little more kind of creative stuff with it like rotating the qr code and uh you can import a library called qr code dash artistic and the pillow library which we've talked about in the show a handful of times and with those there then this library can take advantage of of some additional features for doing things like rotating and adjusting a couple of additional parameters at the very end of it you are doing sort of a more advanced thing of creating animated QR codes, which then I haven't ever seen before, but would be a little more interested like as like an animated GIF that you could put on a you know website. And in this case, they use this GIF of uh, Kurt Cobain rocking out and it goes to a link on YouTube of Smells Like Teen Spirit. So I think it's a neat little exploration of this. Again, I think this is a great jumping off point for people who might be interested in creating a project to build their own the project that i used qr codes with a couple years ago i was working on creating a kind of an out in the world scavenger hunt for our family reunion actually my wife's family part of it was you'd have to prove that you'd gotten to a particular location based upon the directions that were given in the scavenger hunt and so it used your phone kind of like in a style like Pokemon Go or something like that, where you can kind of tell you, it's okay, you're headed in this direction, it's over here, and, and then you're looking for this, you know, particular piece of architecture out in the world. And so I was creating little QR codes that people would then scan and, and put in. So it was fun. So yeah, I like this. I'll include a link to the Segno documentation. It's pretty cool. And again, one of the things I think it focuses on that's interesting is it also kind of makes these very small QR codes, micro QR codes, and that's partly why... It has a whole section on making them larger if you need to print them out and so forth. So, so what's your first one? My first article is by Florin
1: Dalitz, and it's called An Introduction to Python's Funk Tools module. Tools is kind of a dark corner of the standard library, one of those places you don't tend to send beginners, but it has a bunch of stuff that can shorten your code. So why write it yourself if someone else has already made that effort? The common theme of this module is sort of murky. It contains high-order functions and operations on callable objects. And that's a mouthful. Uh, It it means functions that return and interact with other functions, callables, to be perfectly correct. So we talked in episode 125 about LRU cache, which is a decorator which caches the value of your function. Which can possibly give you a performance boost and that's part of tools. so this article is a couple of years old uh, so it's based on python 3.8 but the not much has changed in the library it's been fairly stable it's still a decent introduction even though it's it's a couple of years out it starts out by talking about caching including the lru cache thing i just mentioned as well as something called cached property This is similar to the property decorator for a class, which makes a method accessible as if it's an attribute. And as you might guess from the name the cached property version adds caching capabilities. So now your property does a little calculation and it doesn't get run a second time. The cache value gets returned the second time. One of the ones in the article that I hadn't come across before that uh, is something I should really remember is called total ordering. Yeah, uh, Also a decorator. So you might be familiar with the special methods on a class that get called when you compare two objects. So, for example, Dunder EQ gets called if you compare two objects with double equals. Well, there are five of those. Uh, less than, less than equal, greater, greater than equal, and equal. And fully implementing all of them is a bunch of work. <laughs> yeah. So what Total ordering does is it's a decorator, meaning you don't have to implement them all. You implement dunder EQ and dunder LT, that's the less than one, and then the decorator figures out how to combine them to supply the rest. And the last one I'm going to talk about is the reduce function. This one isn't a decorator. Uh, the idea behind reduce is to express. Operation equals semantics over an iterable. So you might be already familiar with the sum function, which takes an iterable and returns the sum of its components. In that case, the operator equals semantic that I'm talking about would be addition. So you could implement sum by using reduce, passing in the add operator. So there's actually a function called add in the operator module. So you pass in a reference to that and the iterable of things that you want to sum, and it would return the sum just like calling the sum function. Of course, you're not going to do that because sum already exists, but if you want to do something fancier than just addition, reduce is the way to do it. So for example, if you wanted to do the product of of values in an iterable, reduce would be the way, And because it just takes a reference to a function and an iterable, you can hand it your own functions and come up with it. So if you're finding you're doing something like a tight loop with, uh, you know, or equals or and equals or something along those lines, reduce might be an alternative way of doing that in fewer lines of code. Definitely dives into that functional programming stuff. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. And uh, so if you're new to Funk Tools, this is a great introduction. It covers uh, 11 of the, I think, 12 that are now in the most recent. So you're getting almost everything, even though this is 3.8-based. And if you're like me and you could just do with a brush up, you might
0: you know, find something you forgot was in there and, uh, you know, good little read. Great. My next one is a blog post from Oliver Andrich on his site, andrich.me. And it's titled Switching to Hatch. We talk a lot about packaging on the show. I didn't have any experience using Hatch, and so I was kind of interested to see what it was talking about. I wasn't able to dive into a project and get into it so much, but this definitely was written in a really friendly way. I think he's a really good author on this type of topic. It sounds like he likes to share what he's doing as far as not only his personal projects, but what he's trying to apply at work. And it's really engaging. So I, I kind of like that. Lots of nice little examples of how it's being set up. Oliver's been working with lots of different packaging tools over the years. And poetry was one of the main ones he was using for his projects. Some other additional tools to go with it, like the testing tool Talks, which I think you've talked about a little bit. He has been using poetry for his personal stuff in quite a while and has been loving it. And he has links to other articles where he talks about that. Hatch kind of came along in kind of interesting way, it's very much supported by the Python Packaging Authority. It's one of those sort of official packaging tools. So he noticed there was a lot of buzz in the community and on Mastodon and projects he was familiar with using it. He saw what they were saying and they said, okay, the standard compliance is a little better than poetry. He likes the metadata and dependency management. And the big thing that people were chiming on about was that it was faster than a lot of these other tools. He works on a tool called Django Tailwind CLI, those have dashes in between it, and decided to use it on that project. And it takes you through the process of isolating the development environments and the default environments with their separate dependencies. So for, for like testing, he has uh, Django-rich and coverage. So these are things that would need to be installed in that particular environment. But it's kind of nice when you're packaging a tool and trying to make sure all these things work and you don't want, I guess, maybe sort of collisions of different software. If you want to do linting, you might have a separate linting environment and or a doc creation environment. And so that's what he's done here is he has a testing environment and it has Django rich and coverage and a couple of things. He has a linting environment, which has pyrite, which is a type checking tool, curly lint, which I wasn't familiar with, rough and black, which we've talked a lot about on the show, And then a doc environment that's using mkdocs-material, which we've talked about on the show also. So he set up those environments with their dependencies, and these individual environments are created. And then I think the feature that was intriguing to me the most was that he can kind of create these sort of pre-written scripts, if you will, for within each environment with sort of common commands that you would type. And so you can type something like test equals and then What would usually be quite the long string to type into. It's like, you know, Python dash m, Django test dash dash settings, test dot settings. You know, that's a lot to type and it's easy to make a little mistake inside there. So he's by assigning it to test in this example, he's able to just open up this particular environment for testing and run test and or test dash coverage. Something similar like for his linting environment, run pyrite or run black. So I thought that was kind of interesting and each one of these tools (laughs) all have different flags and different kinds of things that you might be interested in focusing on and he prefers this style of working instead of setting up GitHub Actions and pre-commit, sort of easier for him to do all this control by running these commands. And the other thing that it does is it doesn't really require a tool like Tox. Instead, Hatch has its own matrix is what they call it and Tox... If you're not familiar with it at all, it's a tool for testing your code against different versions of Python or potentially other dependencies. Oliver here says that he's not had the best relationship, Um, but he gets pretty much all the functionality he wanted from it within Hatch. And then it also can do, I think I mentioned it, but it not only can look at different versions of Python and run across the versions that you're looking at, but also it can test across an environment that's set up with Django. There's a, a little mention about optional dependencies that have to do with like databases. He's not finding everything to be perfect in the program. He's got complaints about some of the documentation, but he shares some links to additional resources that he's found, especially the Django wiki community um, seems to have helped him. Generally, he's liking it better than using poetry. If you're interested in packaging and exploring some of these new tools, uh, I think this is a great article to kind of get you into a real good use example of what's happening with Hatch. Is it something similar that you're having problems with Tox?
1: Tox is a really, really powerful library, and there's a lot of options, and I use probably half a percent of it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I I use the basic, basic concepts. And so really what ends up happening, I find is I'll I'll run into something and then because I don't use it often and all I really want to do is build the environment and run the tests is I'm always having to dig through, how do I do this, how does that work, whatever. And so the, the thing I found interesting in the article was because of what Hatch provides, it's sort of a simplified version. Well, it's the simplified half a percent that I use. So, I'm interested in trying it out to see it as as a replacement. Yeah. We've talked about Knox before as well, and that the same sort of thing there. I I don't think it's quite as powerful as Talks, but because it isn't configuration files and it's just a few lines of Python, I'm like, well, I know how to write a few lines of Python. So, I don't want to knock Talks. It's just, uh, I need a steak knife and, and it's a Swiss Army knife and I can never find the right blade is, is the problem because <laughs> I don't use it often enough.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll include some links to Hatch also if you want to explore it a little bit. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It touches on a topic we're discussing this week coming from the Funk Tools library. The course is titled Caching in Python with LRU Cache. It's based on a real Python tutorial by Santiago Valderrama. And in the course, my co-host Christopher Trudeau is your instructor and he's gonna show you what caching strategies are available and how to implement them using Python decorators, what the LRU strategy is and how it works, how to improve performance by caching with the at LRU cache decorator, how to expand the functionality of the LRU cache decorator and make it expire after a specific time. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn about how and when to use the LRU cache. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the techniques shown and all courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the search tool. On realpython.com. Uh, what's your next one? So it's been twenty
1: episodes since we covered a post by Adam R. Turner Traum, yeah, wow. uh, <laughs> and I find that a bit surprising. Uh, he's definitely been in Pycoders issues more than that, but I guess we just haven't been highlighting anything in the podcast. The article I want to talk about, he wrote a few weeks back, was called When NumPy is Too Slow. And Don't take the title the wrong way. This is not a complaint about NumPy. It's an instructive guide on what to do if, when you use NumPy for your calcs, it's still causing your machine to grind to a halt. And in fact, it starts out by pointing out the fact that NumPy is a lot faster than plain Python, and most of the time, that's good enough for what you need. But if you're doing some hardcore number crunching, there's some times where that's still not going to be good enough. And so he runs you through a bunch of different ideas that you can to get it, uh, bump that up to the next performance level. Okay. The article is broken down into three parts. Uh, And the first part talks about sort of selecting the right kind of algorithm. This is one of those, I, I find data scientists sometimes have the challenge because oftentimes they haven't come out of a formal CS education. And there's nothing wrong with that but it means there's sometimes there's gaps in the knowledge so you get into things like you know the right choice of an order n versus an order n squared algorithm can make a big difference in your performance and so he's talking a little bit about what that means and how you make sure that you're not you know essentially tying your hands behind your back because of the algorithm that you chose and he doesn't get particularly detailed about this But order n squared algo, you can fine-tune it as much as you like, and the order n algo is going to beat it almost every time, right? So understanding kind of that mechanism and how it impacts your code can make a big difference. The rest of that first section describes the different kinds of bottlenecks that you can run into with NumPy, and sort of works as an intro into the next section, which talks about what to do about it. So it's sort of a bit of a deeper dive into NumPy and the kinds of problems you might run into. So section two is called optimizing your NumPy code, and he breaks this down into a few different parts, how to rewrite your code to use NumPy better. So if you're writing too much Python and there's some things in that where a NumPy call would uh, help, then obviously NumPy is going to be faster because underneath it's a compiled C language. Similarly, there are other libraries that you might want to combine with NumPy like SciPy. And again, this is to get away from using the native Python and then there's some crazier options like recompiling NumPy specifically for your machine. Hmm. So it turns out that, so there's, there's a thing in, in your CPU, in most CPUs called uh, SIMD instructions. And that's a CPU instruction that can work on multiple chunks of data at a time. So it's sort of a way of doing uh, calculations on vectors and things like that. And uh, NumPy uses some libraries to try and understand what platform you're on and use the right SIMD instructions, but there's varying degrees of excellence with that. And so there's a chance that with a good compiler that compiling it specifically for your machine might actually improve the performance because it'll map to the right instructions rather than using the more generic ones. He doesn't get into it in the article, but there's also an advanced section on NumPy's install documentation that talks about your choice of compile dependencies. So NumPy uses one of two libraries, either the Intel MKL or the OpenBLAS, and these are libraries that implement the underlying uh, linear algebra functions. And they both have different performance characteristics, both on how big they are, how fast they are. So if you're recompiling NumPy and tweaking down at this level, make sure that you use the package that's best for your platform, and you might actually see performance differences. The next two options that he talks about uh, are moving away from compiling NumPy and starting to sort of think about the Python side of things. Uh, And both of these are JIT mechanisms, and that's just in time. So JAX is a high-performance computing library and it's got a just-in-time decorator. So essentially you install JAX, and then you wrap your function with this little decorator and it'll apply just-in-time tuning to your code. And a similar alternative is Numba. So essentially this is sort of moving away from fixing the NumPy part and now moving to fixing your Python part. And then the last section, which is rather short, essentially says, or you could add parallelism for your code. And of course, there's a reason this is last that has its own complications. But if you're still stuck, then that might be something to uh, to consider. So another great article from Itamar. And uh, if you do a lot of NumPy work, it's definitely worth the read, even just to better understand what the platform's limits are and uh, you know how to think about the problem uh, so you aren't tying one hand
0: behind your back as you write your code. Nice, yeah, and be able to spot when these things are kind of coming up. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think that takes us into our discussion this week. This discussion is based on a a Medium article by Stephanie Mullen, who I hope to have on the show sometime this fall. We talked at PyCon, and we've kind of been going back and forth as far as trying to set up a date, and looks like maybe later this fall we'll have her come on. She's a data scientist, and her article was titled Five Ways to Get Started in Open Source, and I felt like this was a compared to some of the conversations that are floating around on the internet this was one that i felt like oh this is kind of a positive environment and think about ways to you know grow as a, a developer i think this is a common spot that people that are maybe intermediate or even more advanced in their python journey think to themselves like hey i'd like to get more involved in this but i don't even know where to get started and so the first suggestion that she had was about brainstorming a, a couple of potential projects that you'd like to contribute to. I've had a bunch of authors or projects on the show talk about the types of help that they would like then how you could, could ask if you'd like to be a contributor to them. But one of the ways that I thought was a really good spot that might fit a lot of users is if you are interested in just beginning on this journey A conference is a good place to start in participating in the sprints that they very often have, usually at the end of a conference way back. In episode number eight, I had Tanya Allard on, and she talked about mentored sprints for diverse beginners. And this was back kind of addressing PyCon 2020 when we were going fully remote And a lot of sprints are still doing a half-and-half kind of thing. Um, Not all of them, but some are still able to do remote stuff. So that might be still an option if you aren't able to travel to some of these places. But I've mentioned PyCascades on the show a bunch, and I've mentioned PyCon on the show a bunch. I haven't been focusing on all the stuff that happens in Europe over the summer, but there's a bunch of really interesting things, especially for the data science people there, EuroSciPy and gosh the Django events and so forth so there's a bunch of uh, conferences and projects like if you're interested in let's say you have an open source project this is kind of addressing a completely different audience but and you're looking for new contributors PyCon's sprint page has a really great link to this thing that's called the in-person event handbook this is generally for open source events it's actually really well-documented thing that's helping you kind of get an idea of like, well, how can I prepare my project and put a bunch of opening spots for people to be able to contribute into it and be able to control that whole process, which I thought was really neat. Several of our team members from RealPython have done this. Right off the top of my head, I can think of Gerarna and Martin, even just this last year at PyCon 2023, got involved with some of the in-person sprints so the next one that she suggests that that is probably the most common thing i've had guests suggest to me is where they people could get started was to contribute examples to the project documentation or just to generally work on the documentation so yeah they're looking for code samples or examples or templates and things like that you maybe don't have to have as much nervousness about breaking code or you know setting everything up running and testing and so forth, um, you can kind of more focus on the documentation side of it. You'll still learn many of the ins and outs of contributing. Definitely a lot of the GitHub stuff and the setting up pull requests and so forth. Then she kind of digs into browsing open issues for ideas. I like this one a lot. This would be more, almost like a due diligence on your part. If you are interested in doing this, you can look at projects. Again, find some that you're interested in and then go on their GitHub and just look at open issues or look through the conversations that happen there. And they have tags and they'll have potentially tags that say good first issue or easy or beginner. Like a lot of reading that happens on GitHub and reading code, it's a really good way to follow along through that. But also by reading it, you're going to learn what the community that's working on the project is like. And you can also you know learn the kind of communications that you should probably do in that. And then um, you can check for pull requests that potentially address what you've, you're interested in. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting way to kind of think about it and learn about the process of, of doing this. And then the fourth and fifth are, I think, things that I'm going to bring Christopher in to discuss this a little bit more since I've just been kind of monologuing. But uh, the fourth one was identifying and fixing a bug, you know, finding something that's wrong or you ran into. And then I would say... That one's, you know, a little taller order potentially. And then the fifth one was proposed and implement a new feature. Again, this is an area where you really want to read what's happening, check that your idea or new feature isn't something that's already been suggested or implemented already and discarded. And that could be put away, not only in open, but closed issues that are there. I don't have as much experience with this. This is something that I want to learn more about it. So I kind of want to ask Christopher, like, what's his experience like before we get into... Number four and number five. There, have you ever been involved in sprints? I've no, no, I
1: haven't done a sprint uh, at a conference, um, but I could definitely see the value in, in my professional career. I, I've seen uh, the value of paired programming, yeah, from a knowledge transfer perspective, and essentially this is a short-term version of that with a specific topic. So I, I could see that being very, very helpful. Yeah, Th- there's also there's a social aspect to all of this, right? So there's different reasons for contributing. There's, I want to learn more. Yeah. Uh, There's, I like this project and I want to give back to the project. There's, you know, for me, I've, I've used it several times where it's like this, you know, this is covers 80% of my problem. And so I just, if it, if it had this feature, um, (laughs) so that then you're sort of scratching your own itch. And then there's the resume building aspect as well. So something like a sprint can be really, really helpful for a couple of those because not only are you going to learn some more and you've got the experts beside you, but you also have that aspect of you're getting FaceTime with people who do this. Yeah. So if you have a question in a forum, it's more likely to get answered because they remember who you are and you were helpful. Right or if you if you're proposing a new feature and s- instead of getting the immediate no there's no need for that you might get the how do you plan on using this conversation again because you've you've created that sort of social connection that happens to it so uh, whether it's the sprints themselves or even i find also with the bug fixes right so there've been a couple times where there's been some itch I want to scratch or there's a new project I want to build and there's a framework that I'm thinking, oh, I want to build something using this framework. I'll go in and look for a bug on the framework and commit something to it because by before I actually go off and use the framework hardcore, because uh, fixing the bug helps me understand how the framework works better. I'm digging into the internals a little bit to fix the bug, it, a, as I said, it establishes a relationship with the maintainers. So when you go and it turns into, "Hey, I need this other feature so I can use it," or I have a question, there's a, a that social currency happens that uh, you're, you're creating a relationship there. So yeah, so there, there's all sorts of kind of reasons and drivers behind this kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So in your experience, you've done a little bit more of like identifying and, and potentially fixing a bug. What was your experience with that? Uh, it varies widely
1: from uh, project to project and maintainer to maintainer. <laughs> okay, turns out people are different. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. <laughs> the The challenge you'll have sometimes with uh, fixing a bug, uh, particularly for larger libraries, is they're often maintained in for like multiple environments. Yeah. So you'll run into you know one of the libraries I, I've contributed to a little bit they're still maintaining Python 2.7 compatibility. Mm. And I can't, I don't know what, there's something about one of the project dependencies that it needs Python 2.7 and Pillow, and it needs a specific version of Pillow, and that version of Pillow needs a specific version of some C library that my Mac doesn't have, and you sort of just get to a point of, "Mm, I can't run all of the tests on this.
0: Mm.
1: And so that can be a bit of a, a blocker, and again, that's where it can be helpful to have had a conversation with the maintainer first, right? So in that case with that particular project, because I fixed a couple bugs before, I can go, I'm confident this isn't going to break that. I'm confident like these other Python 2.7 tests still pass, but that one doesn't. But that's, that's because of my dependency problem. Can you double check this on your machine? And because... I'm submitting a fix. I've submitted fixes before. There's a trust thing a little bit there. Then they'll, they'll go, oh yeah, no problem. They'll run it. Whereas if you come as a newbie and basically you're saying, well, I don't like to use Travis and you use Travis, but you know I'm going to do it my way. Well, that's not going to go over well, right? So yeah, and that unfortunately that's the challenge with this stuff, right? Like, is the the bigger and more interesting projects the the higher the level of the bar of getting it to run on your machine. That's true. And, and it it uh, it complicates it, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, that's why I think, like for some of the larger projects where they've kind of got everything set up in the sprint environment, that's maybe a, yes. a better environment for you because yeah. they're going to have people there helping you and sort of confirming things and sort of have, I don't know, I, I want to call them entry points. <laughs> you know, like these are the areas that we're looking for help in and, and it maybe isn't going to be as uh, clunky as you trying to stand up all the stuff on your machine.
1: Yeah, and I, some of that is changing as well, right? So with uh, increasing with things like the use of things like the GitHub Actions, yeah, increasingly a lot of that testing is happening on the server. So you can you so you can you can run the local and go, okay, I've got three eleven. I'll run the three eleven test. I haven't broken it, so I'm not submitting something that is garbage, and then you put in the fork and you know put in your PR and then the PR will go and run the process in the background and it'll spit something out and go, hey, this didn't pass in Python 2.7. Yeah. And so you can go in and change your code and it, it lengthens the circle for fixing it because you're going up to the server and round again. But as things become more and more cloudified about this stuff, that environment thing has been set up by somebody else. It becomes less of a problem.
0: That's nice. Yeah, and so your experience, probably the, the most of it has been Proposing or implementing a new feature—is that kind of the the main experiences you've had lately?
1: Yeah, I think most of the time it's uh, I've got an itch I need to scratch. You know, the one that was uh, simpler than that. I, I think I've told this story before, but I was doing some work with uh, Django Ninja. Yeah, didn't know how to do something like it felt like it was something that I should be able to do, and so I submitted a an issue request. Like a they they use the bug tracker for their Q and A as well. And so I just sort of said, hey, can I do, is this possible? How would I do it? And they replied back, yep, here it is in a little code snippet. I'm like, oh, I know exactly where in the documentation that should go. And uh, I said, hey, I, I, I'm willing to do the work on putting that into your docs. Uh, can I take that answer and put it in your docs? And i like, oh, yeah, of course. So, you know, fork the repo, add three lines, three sentences and an example into the documentation and yeah. and if I've got the question, somebody else might have had the question, right? So that one, and again, like you don't even have to run the tests at that point because you're only touching touch the markdown files or whatever, right? So so I've had a couple situations like that but most of the time uh, because I'm a relatively experienced developer, I'm I'm not doing it to learn more about software, I'm doing it because I'm trying to solve a problem.
0: Right. So I you got something blocking you, actually.
1: Yeah, my experience is I could write this from scratch, or that library does most of it. So, and depending on the library, I might be able to, you know, build a little plugin or something, right? So, uh, one of the tools I'm building right now, the the library I'm using is a Tweet Library, and I needed a new widget. I built the new widget, and I, I fired it off to the maintainer and basically said look, this code exists. <laughs> yeah. If you would like it in the library, I'm happy to do a PR. <laughs> if you don't want it in the library, don't worry about it. And because I needed to write the code either way, right? And it turned out of the two things I had done, the one he was like, oh yeah, that's great. Let's add that. And the other one he was like, I'll think about it. And I haven't heard back. So I'm, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the answer was no, essentially, right? So yeah, but again, that's coming very much from uh, I'm trying to solve certain kinds of problems. If you're coming at it from a, I want to learn more about software, I think you're better off looking at things like what are the open bugs yeah, and going down that path and contributing that way. The other aspect of it too, and this again comes back to the sort of that social societal contract thing, is uh, the resume building aspect, right? So it looks really, really good on a resume to be able to say, I contributed to... Django because everyone knows what Django is right, right, right. Uh, and the fact that your contribution might have been I wrote some documentation in a language that I did a, a language translation right like the documentation English to you know French or whatever else right. whatever languages you speak uh, most interviewers aren't even going to ask that question and even if they do you can basically all you're doing is admitting to volunteering right so right, which is good too there's value in that kind of stuff as well so yeah, so there's all sorts of reasons to, to do these kinds of
0: things. Yeah, Stephanie provides a couple other resources in it, which I think is great, along with the sprints that we mentioned and you know potentially browsing projects and looking for open issues and things like that. She mentions Hacktoberfest, which is a, a GitHub kind of thing um, during the month of October, where a lot of open source projects sort of list what they want. If you're looking to see the types of projects that, that do this sort of like open call <laughs> to people, I'll include the link from uh, PyCon 2023 and you can see the the different projects there. Um, and then I'll, I'll include the link for the Hacktoberfest thing since it's coming up soon if you're interested in digging into that this fall. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention about contributing?
1: Yeah, just, just one other small piece of advice, which is even if you are an experienced developer, small features before big features.
0: Yeah, yeah, get used to it. Yeah, learn the workflow.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, and part of it, it's also, it's kind of like a job interview, right? Like <laughs> the, the the employer wants to know whether or not they want to hire you, but you also want to figure out whether or not you want to work for the employer. There are projects that are harder to contribute to. There are projects where the bar is higher. There's all that. There's, you know, again, people, people are complicated, right? Uh, so do something small, whether it's a bug fix or a small feature and see how it goes. And, uh, you know, they uh your time is definitely going to be valuable to somebody and if you happen to hit one of those projects where they're not as welcoming uh, you know don't don't spend 6 months of your life building something that it turns out that they don't want right so yeah. do do some little things see how it works see how it's responded to and
0: then add on to it or find somewhere else to contribute cool all right well that takes us uh very conveniently into projects do you want to go first on this one sure okay yeah my project this week is the essence of simplicity.
1: Uh, it's called No Dice CLI, and it's by GitHub user Avnago. I'm totally guessing as to where to put the spaces in that. (laughs) So if you're familiar with the XKCD comic Correct Horse Battery Staple, this is a tool that makes those. And if you're not familiar with that comic or don't know what XKCD is, you probably think I'm having a stroke. What the comic points out is that stringing random words together often has more entropy than weird gibberish things we use for passwords. Uh, And of course, more entropy is better. It makes your password harder to guess. There are some flaws to his logic, because uh, he's assuming your uh, tack is treating each letter as a separate item rather than permuting a dictionary, but let's not get into that. Uh, so what No Dice does is generate these kinds of word salad strings. So after I pip installed it and ran it for the first time, I got Outflank Dueler Overripe Blip Gossip, uh, as if there's any other kind of gossip than Overripe Blip Gossip.
0: Yeah. I always feel it's overripe. <laughs> uh,
1: the tool takes all sorts of options. Uh, you can specify your own list of words. You can add delimiters between the words. Uh, the output of the word list can actually be the number of the word in the list, so that if you want to like write software that translates it or pulls it out or whatever, it isn't just the words themselves. You can affect how the randomness is done. And you can even uh instead of saying "I want five words," you can say, "I want this much entropy," and it will spit out the right number of words to do that so nice fun little tool to play with um, and I think I'll wrap this up with a direct quote from the documentation uh anybody desecrate battalion agility skid, so there you go,
0: <laughs> yeah yeah this it's kind of weird those things are always much easier to uh remember. I know that's a common thing for uh, the company 1Password. All right, well my project, the title is ML Recipes, Collection of Machine Learning Recipes, and it's a GitHub repo by Nicolas Rougier, a researcher, he's a team leader at the Institute of Neurodegenerative Diseases in Bordeaux, France. And it's a collection of standalone Python examples, machine learning algorithms, You know, his suggestion on there is run a specific recipe to see its usage and its results and feel free to contribute your own examples. Uh, The recipe should be fairly small. All these examples are fairly small, including their usage. I think is a great place to kind of dig into this stuff if you're interested in, in learning a little bit more of it. For each one of them, he has a link to sort of explain Generally what they're about, like a multi arm bandit or M-A-B, it links to the Wikipedia explaining that type of algorithm. And he has versions of it, um, Epsilon Greedy, Softmax, Thompson Sampling, Upper Confidence Bound. Has examples of uh, artificial neural networks with about six or seven different ones. A couple I've heard of, Simple Recurrent Network, Long Short-Term Memory, Perceptron and Kernel Perceptron. A couple I haven't heard of. Uh, The Markov Decision Process and Dimensionality Reduction. So these are, again, machine learning algorithms and a really great way to kind of see what they sort of look like. I can tell that the span uh, versions of python <laughs> um there's f strings in some of them and then uh, format and other ones and so it, it's kind of interesting to see um maybe across time where these have been developed but i, I really think it, it's a good uh collection for people that are interested in just sort of seeing what these things look like and i always like recipes as far as programming stuff I, I always find them as good starting places
1: I I was, uh, I've been having deep conversations about AI with a friend of mine because I've been building out a course for it and I've been picking his brain because he knows more about it than me. And uh, he said something I found very, very insightful, which is there's more to artificial intelligence than machine learning and there's more to machine learning than LLM. (laughs) Yes, very true. So, yeah, go look at the recipes. There's more to machine learning than LLM.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like the term machine learning so much better. (laughs) All right, well, uh, thanks again, Christopher, for bringing all these projects and articles this week.
1: Always great to be here.
0: All right, we'll talk to you soon. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.